So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 10th chapter, verses 4 through 9. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the king of God, the kingdom of God has come near you. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding. Let's ask him for special illumination this morning. Father, as we pick this passage back up after having started it a couple of weeks ago, I pray that you will allow us to plug right back into it and to put this into its perspective and then to apply it, that we will see the simple formula that, that, that you have here for us to follow and that this would be something individually and as a church that we would really take to heart and recognize that um, uh, we are a very vital part of what your plans for your kingdom are. We will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I realize that um, some of you who are here are not really familiar with the fact that this church has a, a very strong missions direction. Uh, some of you have come either during the pandemic or after it, and out of necessity during those years, our missions activity came to a grinding halt. But for years, we have been very, very involved with missions, two to three short-term missions trips per year. We have taught seminars and, and, and gone to uh, taking people out into the world to share the gospel with them. Now, um, when we do that, when we develop a team, it's not like we just say, okay, you know, sign up, we're going to go to Haiti, for instance, and we'll, we'll meet you at the airport at you know, 4 o'clock uh, and, and catch our plane. That's not the way it works. I mean, there's extensive training. Uh, there are many team meetings where we do team building and, and we get a bond between the people, but also we want those who are going, especially for the first time, to understand the kind of culture they're going to, the kind of travel that will be required, what our accommodations will be, and in particular, the way that we will conduct ministry when we are there. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing with his disciples, these 72 men that he is sending out to go before him into the surrounding areas. He is preparing them. He is teaching them about what, how they're going to go, the way they're going to travel, where they're going to stay, and how to treat their hosts and the variety, the various kinds of ministry that they will be involved with. But what this is, this is going to boil down to a very simple but winning, effective, and relevant formula that Jesus is establishing here that has been at the very heart of the building of the kingdom of God, at the very heart of the missionary and, and, and evangelism outreach of the church. And, and, and it's this simple formula. It is the missionaries of peace sharing the message of peace with the children of peace introducing them to the Prince of Peace. And I'm going to unravel that as we go through and show you that this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Now, as I said, we actually started this passage a couple of weeks ago before our missions conference. And, 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 and I, we need to go back and sort of pick it up. Because I told you that time we were artificially dividing a passage that we really shouldn't divide. It really belongs together. But there's too much text and way too much richness in this text to try to cram it all into one message, so we had to divide it, but it flows together. So let's go back and let's pick up some of what we learned already, and so we can apply it as we go through. First of all, if you remember, we're, we're sort of approaching Luke's discussion of discipleship as if it were a, a great jigsaw puzzle uh, with many pieces, and we're going to look at each individual piece and analyze it and see what it says, but 
it's really not going to be until we've got the whole picture, the whole piece, the puzzle put together that we're going to actually see what discipleship is determined to be in Scripture. And I can tell you it's radically different than the way it is presented in most evangelical circles today. But nonetheless, two metaphors Jesus gave us that we looked at last week. If you still have your Bibles open, look at the second verse here because that's the first one. He says this, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, we kind of fleshed that out and talked about this massive, great field full of grain. And and there's only a small number that are there to harvest it. So the job to start out with is absolutely impossible. There's just way too much and it's all ripe, ready for harvest right now. Now, we define that field as not just being the world at one time, but being the world throughout the church age, the age that we're in. And and this grain, this harvest represents the elect, God's chosen, the ones that he has determined before the foundation of the world are going to come into his kingdom. So that means that not one single kernel is going to be lost. So Jesus, when he tells his disciples to pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into that harvest, he's actually praying for the laborers and that God would raise these laborers up. Well, we're going to see instructions that Jesus gives to those laborers this morning. And the second metaphor is in the third verse, just after it. Go your way, behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And so not only is this just a monumental task that they can't possibly accomplish, but it's a dangerous place. In fact, life-threatening as Two metaphors kind of begin to morph with each other, and and we kind of stop it in the middle of it, where you can still see the field, but now we've zoomed in on one kernel of grain, and it now is a lamb surrounded by voracious satanic wolves, just ready to have lunch. So Jesus' plan to build his kingdom is to send helpless, defenseless lambs out to save helpless, defenseless lambs from the mouths of voracious, ravenous, demonic wolves. And we said, boy, that's quite a plan. Um, But the fact that we're here today, uh, this formula works. And and it has worked effectively and relevantly all throughout the history of the church. And we're going to unravel it just a wee bit today. Now, with those two metaphors in mind, Jesus has kind of done the overview of of what this is going to be like. And by the way, both of those metaphors are to emphasize the fact that we can't do this on our own. This is God's field. It is God's harvest. These are God's people, his lambs that he's bringing into his fold. We're the laborers. We're we're the workers. And so unless God is the one directing this, unless he's in charge, we fail before we even start. And and that's really what Jesus is teaching his disciples, their need to depend on him. And, of course, that's exactly what it's going to say in this fourth verse when he talks about what they take with him. So with that said, let's jump into our text. We have quite a bit of it this morning, so let's um, move on. Four things Jesus says is a prohibition. I don't want this to be part of your uh, your missionary tour. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Now, three out of four of those items are items of personal comfort, items that people would take normally on a trip to make their trip a little bit more comfortable. First, he says, take no money back. Well, the word that is translated money bag is a word that is talks about a bag that is usually carried by rich people. They would sew them on the inside of their cloaks or their money belts so they could hold or hide their money in them so people couldn't see it. it it's not the kind of bag or purse that a poor man is going to carry or someone who is not taking along his or her own sustenance. So... Jesus is saying, you know, I'm not saying don't take any money along with you, but you don't need an overage. You're not going to provide for yourself. I want you having looking to me to provide your sustenance for you. 
Second thing he says is don't take a knapsack. Well, that word describes sort of a travel bag, a bag that you would take maybe some extra clothes, a couple of sandwiches in them, or, or maybe an extra pair of sandals um, to, to, to change or to, to, to make yourself more comfortable along the way. But there's also a nuance to that word that the Greek dictionary points out. Um, back in those days, there were quite a few traveling preachers, philosophers, teachers that would travel around. And they had a particular kind of bag that was clearly identifiable that this word stands for. They called it a beggar's bag. And after they got through teaching or preaching, they would walk around with their beggar's bag and say, here, you know, I need a donation so I can continue on with my ministry. And Jesus makes it clear to these 72 men that that is not an option. These are words that need to resonate through the halls of most of the evangelical churches today because Jesus did not say, I want to send you out so that you can line your pockets with money and, and better yourself through your career. Well, anyway, he goes on and says, no sandals. Now, I think that Jesus is talking a hyperbole here because if, any, if you've been to this part of the world, you know that you're not going to make it very far with no sandals. I mean, there's sharp rocks everywhere. There are brambles. The, the heat of the sand in the desert is like enough to burn your feet. And there are scorpions and, and snakes. And so it, it would stop your, your expedition before you even got started. So basically what Jesus is saying here is don't take an extra pair of sandals. And, and that goes for the rest of your clothes too. Don't, don't take an extra cloak. You know, just go as you are. And the overriding reason for this is Jesus wants these men to be looking to him for their provision. And we're going to see how he brings that provision about. Now the fourth one of these is unique to Luke and it's kind of interesting if, if you look at it. He, he says that, um, he says, and, 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 and don't stop or, or don't talk to anyone on the road. Well, if you're an evangelist who's been sent out to share the gospel, how are you going to share the gospel if you don't talk to anyone? And, and, and so obviously Jesus isn't saying that. What he's saying is, I don't want you to dawdle. I don't want you to have lengthy conversations. Now, this isn't a problem for us because we all carry our cell phones around. We're used to talking to each other in sound bites. We recognize that I can send you a text if I want to get something that I forgot. But there are many places in the world that that's rude. You don't do I mean, and I'm thinking specifically of pre-cell phone Haiti. Um, because it was considered rude if you saw somebody on the street that you hadn't seen in a while, if you just passed them by with a, hey, how you doing? You needed to stop, and you need to have a conversation, at least up where we go in the Plateau Central. Now, if you've got an appointment across town and 15 people you see along the way, well, you're not going to make your appointment if you talk to each one of them. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is impressing upon these men that there is an urgency to your mission. This is central. There are lambs out there in the midst of wolves. Now, he doesn't mean this urgency in a more Arminian sense, like they're going to go to hell if you don't get out there and share the gospel with them, because after all, that's God's field, and none of them are going to get lost. But there's still an urgency to the work of the evangelist. There's an urgency that the church should feel and, and, and recognize that this is not just a suggestion that Jesus puts in the very back of what he wants you to do. This is a forefront. This is the activity of the church. Well, then after he, if, if he, after he tells them, this is the way I want you to go on this trip, now he's going to tell them, well, here's what I want you to do when you reach your destination. Look in the fifth verse. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Now, before we talk about peace, because this sort of introduces the whole idea of peace to this passage, which is extremely important. But let's just go back to that, what Jesus just assumes. Notice he, he just assumes when he says, whatever house 
you enter, as if there, there's no chance of a motel or a hotel or some other kind of institution. And, and most of you know that they were few and far between in, in this part of the world during this part of time. And that normally when people came into a village or a town and they needed to sojourn there for a while, they would sojourn at someone's house. And that brings in the whole idea of of Mideastern hospitality. We've said it many times here that it was obligatory in those days. If someone needed shelter and came to you to ask for it, it was obligatory. It it was required out of plain old hospitality. You may not know this person from Adam, but you were to take them into your house to give them a place to stay, wash their feet and feed them. I mean, that was just considered to be everyday, everyday kind of dealings with sojourners. But... There's one thing I don't think that we we may have caught in this is that it was considered to be a privilege, actually, to to, to be the one who a sojourner was led to, to be the one that that brings that person into your house was was kind of like a badge of honor. It it, it was a privilege, and that's going to be important later on when we see Jesus tell these men that you, you want to stay in the house to where you go. But nonetheless, when these when when you went into this house, I want you to see the significance of what Jesus is doing. When he sends these missionaries out into the surrounding areas, he doesn't send them to the Colosseums. He doesn't send them to run crusades. He doesn't send them to exercise projects or even to go out into the the, the marketplaces and preach on the streets. I mean, they may do that, but their primary objective and their primary destination is a home. It is someone's house house. And that brings up one of the most important features of this passage this morning. The personal nature, the intimate nature, the one-on-one nature of the gospel. After all, this is a personal religion. We have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying there's not a place for crusades, there's not a place for the Colosseums, there's not a place for street evangelism. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that when Jesus sends these men out, he wants them to form personal relationships relationships with a family and through that personal relationship is way the way that the gospel is going to grow and the kingdom is going to grow so once they get there once they get to the house they are told to bring a blessing of sorts to say peace beyond this house now obviously they're not talking about the stones and mortar and timber of the house. They're talking about the people who live in that house. Now, before we get to what that means, which is very significant, let's talk about the meaning of peace. And most of you know this, but let me go ahead and spell it out. The Hebrew sense of peace is not our sense of peace. It's not the sense of peace of the Greeks, for instance, which would be the absence of conflict, the absence of war, a harmony or tranquility to life. I mean, that's peace in one sense, but it's not the kind of peace that the Hebrews talked about when they used that word shalom, because that kind of peace ultimately is peace with God, the impossible peace between a perfect and a holy, righteous God and sinful, fallen humanity. There is enmity between the two. It teaches us in Scripture. And now there's a person who has come into the house that says, peace beyond this house. Now, granted, they, they used the word shalom as a greeting, they could either, when entering the house, say, Shalom, hello, everybody. When they left the house, they could say, Shalom, goodbye, everybody. But that's not the way that they're using it here. It, it is, yes, it, it is an address, but it's more of a, of a blessing that there's being passed off. But it's also an, an invitation. It, it, it is also a, 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 a way of inviting them to actually receive the gift of peace. 
Let me, let me see if I can explain that. This is a vital concept um, as far as who these missionaries of peace are. I read you earlier from um, one of Isaiah's servant songs. Again, a messianic song, but talking, really kind of laying the groundwork for those who come to bear peace. And this is what he said. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. The one who brings peace with them. The one who is able to bring peace in the Hebrew sense, the shalom sense, to the households. Now, when Jesus taught his great sermon on the mount in Matthew, he starts that great sermon out with a list of blessings, blessedness. Now, some people think that we call them the Beatitudes, and some people think that means these are the kinds of attitudes that you should have or be. That's not what they mean. The word makarios in the Greek talks about a state of blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for theirs, uh, they will inherit the earth. Now, what Jesus is saying there is those people who have those attributes are in a state of blessedness because they're spiritually bankrupt. They mourn over their sins. They are meek before a holy God, knowing that they cannot save themselves and so will turn to God for their solutions as far as salvation is concerned. They live in a state of God. God-given blessedness. Well, later on in that same Beatitudes, this is what Jesus said. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, we want to put peace into the context of what peace actually means. It doesn't mean those who come and stop you from fighting and get harmony in the household or, 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 or bring, knock out the contention that is amongst you. A peacemaker is someone who literally makes peace between you and God. It's between those who bring the peace, the, the, the feet on the mountain that are beautiful, that are bringing peace and bringing it into the household. So when these people are to walk into a house and say, peace be upon this house, they're the peacemakers. They're the ones who are bringing the only secret to true peace with God. And they're saying, I have this great and this marvelous and this wonderful gift to bring to this household. Kind of puts it in a different perspective, doesn't it? Well... Jesus goes on to say of what will happen, the reaction that is going to occur when this, when this goes on. He says that whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Kind of brings up the question, doesn't it? What actually is a son of peace? Or a daughter of peace? Who are the children of peace in the way that Jesus is meaning this? Well, once again, let me see if I can describe it for you. Children tend to reflect the tone and the nature and the characteristic of the family they grow up in. Now, that's painting it with a broad brush. I know that there are many exceptions to that rule. But in general, we talk about a son reflecting his father. Sometimes we talk about, well, you know, he's a chip off the old block. Or a daughter being so much like her mother. They, we say the apple didn't fall very far from that tree. That, that the children will reflect the, the family that they're raised in. If it's a loving and a godly and a compassion and a giving family, well, quite often that's the way the, the children are going to be. But by the same token, if it's arrogant and contentious and angry and worldly, then that's the way sometimes the children are. They're going to reflect the kind of a world that they grew up in. Well, a son of peace, a son of peace is one, is one who has, has that nature, that desire, that yearning, that, that necessity, that hole that is inside of them. And they desire peace. They're looking for that peace. They, 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 they have an emptiness that can only be filled by a relationship with their God. Jesus also said in those Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Might as well have said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for peace. Those who are like fresh fruit, just ready to drop off the vine because they have such a great need that has been established in their hearts by the Holy Spirit for peace. That when peace walks through the front door, then they're just ready to receive that peace. Such a man was old Simeon, if you'll remember early in Luke, in the second chapter, remember that? When Jesus was brought as an infant by his parents to the temple. And old Simeon took one look at him and he said, now, okay, but Luke had put it this way. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. When this man saw the infant Christ, he instantly knew who he was. And he picked him up and he said, praise God, now I can die in peace. Because I have seen my deliverer. I have seen the Messiah. He was so ready to receive peace that he was just a son of peace. And the way that Jesus means it, surely these are the ones that Jesus talks about when he says that the fields are ripe for harvest. Or in John 4, when he says that the fields are white for harvest. They're ready, ready to drop off the vine. Well, that's what a son of peace is. That, that, that's the kind of household that Jesus is talking about. So if you go into a household and you say, peace be upon you, I have come to give you and to bring the gift of peace. If they're a son of peace, if they're one that the Holy Spirit has prepared for that peace, if their hearts are regenerated and they're looking for that peace, then your peace will settle upon them. And and you leave it because it's the peace of God. And they find peace through the sharing of the gospel. But unfortunately, not everyone receives that peace. Not not everyone responds that way. And that's why Jesus goes on to say, but um, and and if a, a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not... It will return to you. It's almost as if they, they come in with a gift. And they say, this is the gift of God. This is the gift of God's peace. Reconciliation. Relationship with God. Through the king of a kingdom who is on his way to come and see you. And they look at that and they say, I'm sorry, I don't want it. Take it back. Take it back to him. Take his gift back and throw it back at him because I reject it. Because I don't need it. I'm going to save myself. Or for whatever reason, they would do such a thing. Kind of brings up a paradox here. Paradox that we want to make sure that we see. You know, we are vital. These men are vital. The apostles are vital. The uh, evangelists. The the people who go out into the the laborers of the field to go out there. They're absolutely essential to the spreading of the gospel. But on the same token, they're not essential at all. Because not a one of us can make someone a son or daughter of peace. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only God can do that. We don't save anyone. We just simply take the message forward and we tell them about Jesus. We explain that's the formula. It requires God who turns the heart of someone into a son or a daughter of peace. And then if you bring peace and you say peace be upon this house, the peace will go upon them. But if the Holy Spirit has not changed the heart, has not regenerated the heart, then I don't care how charismatic or how convincing the evangelist is, that peace is going to return to them. It's going to have to go along with them. And so we have this paradox that we see as far as the missionaries of peace. We are absolutely vital to the process of evangelism and redemption and salvation. But we are absolutely of no consequence at all in the process of evangelism and salvation. That's what we mean by paradox. You know, it doesn't make sense. It's like two different things. But yes, we're the ones that God has ordained to take the message of the kingdom out there. But without the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the people that we take the message to, the message is going to bounce off of them and fall to the floor like a bunch of lead letters. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit. And so therefore we're essential... But by the same token, we're not. So Jesus goes on and he, and, and he uh, 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 tells them of how they are to interact with the host that they go to see. Look at the um, seventh verse. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. 
For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Isn't that interesting? It kind of says the same thing twice, really emphasizing it. And, and, and I told you before that, that personal relationships are at, at the very core of what Jesus is putting forward. So notice what he says. He says that uh, when you remain at the same house, don't believe eating and drinking what they provide. Now, in the Jewish household, the most intimate time of family communion was at the dinner table or at the table. It's when they gather together to eat. Unfortunately, this is something that has sort of fallen apart in our culture. So many families don't have times that they regularly gather together at the same table and have that special communion that occurs over food. Uh, they, they eat quickly. They drive through uh, fast food restaurants. They eat early in the morning at different times, come home at different times, grab a bite here and there. And to sit down as a family and commune in that way is becoming more and more of a rarity. But not so for the families of that time. That This was the most important time of the day. It was the time when there was intimate relationship between the family. And to be invited into that, to be given a place at the table, to be invited into that fellowship and that relationship and that intimacy is the kind of personal relationship that Jesus is talking about. Now, yes, there, there, there can be campaigns and crusades. You can go uh, preach in the marketplace. But when, the, when you go home, that's a one-on-one. That's one person, or in this case, two, telling one person about Jesus. That, that's the core of this, of this evangelistic outreach. That's the core of missions. It all boils down to that. A a missionary of peace, sharing the message of peace with sons and daughters of peace, telling them about the Prince of Peace. That quite often happened at the table when these people were there. Now, Jesus goes on and says that the laborer or the laborer is worth his hire, worth his wages or deserves his wages. Now, the laborer, the word for laborer, is the exact same word that we read earlier in the second verse that pray to the God of the harvest, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send more laborers into his harvest. So, obviously, these laborers are the same ones. These are the disciples. These are the missionaries, the evangelists, the ones who are sharing the good news, the the happy feet, the blessed feet on the mountain that bring the good news. And so what Jesus says is that the laborer is worth his hire and worth his wages. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a passage that uh, I'm not going to do justice to. Uh, I, some kind of, some way, I wish we had an after church so I could deal with this today. There is a vital relationship that is being established here and discussed, and that is the relationship between the peacemaker. And the sons and daughters of peace. The relationship. The intimate relationship between the two. The love relationship. Bring it into a more modern context. is the relationship between a minister and the congregants of the church. The relationship that exists between them. And I could go into a great detail here about what it should be and what it shouldn't be. But let me, just, let me just tell you that this is what I think Jesus is saying as an overview here. He's telling these men that go ahead and eat whatever is put on your table. Whatever is before you, go ahead and eat it. Spend this intimate time with these people. And don't worry about the fact that they are providing for you your sustenance. Because I have actually arranged this. In other words, it's a fair trade. You are bringing the bread of life and the living water, spiritual meat and bread, into this household. It only fits, Paul says, that they should respond with your physical needs. Especially so that you can continue in the work of the kingdom. And you can continue to be a peacemaker and take the peace out into the rest of the community. So there's a bond, there's a relationship between the peacemakers and the sons and daughters of peace. As I said, this is something that is much more complex than we have time to deal with it at this particular time. But I want you to see what he says next. He says, don't go from house to house. 
Don't house hop. Now, here's the prohibition that Jesus is giving his, his disciples. He's saying, that what I don't want you to do is go into a town or a village and you meet someone, probably a divine appointment, hopefully a son or daughter of peace, and they take you to their very modest dwelling place. They give you a place in the barn with the animals and they feed you cold gruel. All right, but you're, you're cared for, you're taken care of so you can go about your work. Uh, and, and then when you go out to the marketplace, some other person comes up and says, well, where are you staying? And you say, well, I'm over here in so-and-so's house. And they laugh and say, that's, that's the worst accommodations in town. Come to my house, man. You'll have a feather bed. You know, I've got delicacies expertly prepared. You know, I'll just take care of you right and left. And then you go back to the first house that has already extended you the hospitality. And it's an honor to have you in their household. And you say, sorry, you're not good enough. I'm going to go someplace else where the accommodations are better and I'm more comfortable. Well, how do you know that that person that the Lord has led you to the first time is not going to be the pillar of the church in that community going forward? How do you know that that is not a hugely significant and important person coming into the kingdom and you have just offended them by what you have done? So the very first thing that the Lord is saying here is stay where you're planted so that you don't offend your guests. I'm sorry, Annie, I have to tell this story. I don't know if you've ever done that, but I've offended my guests before. Annie was with me, and we together deeply offended a guest. And the reason we offended him was because we did not eat what he set before us. We were way up high in the Andes Mountain in a little town called Huaraz. And, and and it's the Quechua there, Quechua in, in Ecuador. But we were with the Quechua Indians up there, and we were invited over to the house of a Quechua chieftain, the, the head guy in this community, for dinner. And 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 and, and I had taken Annie with me. I was making a video for the the hinterland group, and 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 the one thing the missionaries told us when they were taking us to this house is the very make sure you don't refuse anything they put before you. And make sure that you eat everything that's on your table, okay? Everything that they set before you. Well, here's Annie. Uh, I think you were like first year of college or something, just out of high school. And it's six burly men in the middle of this Quechuan uh, uh, town. And the first thing that they did, I'm kind of morphing things together here. The first thing they did is serve us chicken claw soup. You ever had chicken claw soup? It's actually pretty good. It's chicken soup with the claws of the chicken floating around it and the combs of the roosters. And those are considered to be delicacies, actually. Um, and, and so that kind of started us off wrong uh, um, uh, that way. Um, but we remember, you got to eat everything they put in front of you. And so the next course was a big bowl of boiled potatoes, probably four big potatoes sliced and boiled. And they put that plate right in front of Annie. And I thought to myself, okay, well, that's okay. Don't worry. That's the, I mean, she looked at me with those eyes like, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, and, and I said, don't worry. Uh, you know, it's, I'm sure that's for the whole table. Well, it wasn't. It, 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 they put one of those in front of each one of us. So we've got this huge plate full of potatoes we're supposed to eat. And, and then they serve the delicacy. They serve the, 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 the best dish. It, they were so proud of themselves. It was a whole fried cui. And those of you from Peru or from that area know that cui is the Peruvian word for guinea pig. And here's this little guinea pig holed up with his little... His little feet sticking up in the air, and, and we're supposed to eat the whole thing. Um, we didn't. Um, we, <laughs> to make a long story short, we didn't do it, and we left. Uh, I mean, the, the qui was delicious, by the way. Um, uh, that wasn't the problem. The problem were those potatoes. But we offended the Quechuan chieftain badly. I mean, it was a major faux pas, and we left with the missionaries trying to cover over, you know, they're Americans, you know, what do they know, uh, type of thing. But nonetheless, one of the reasons that Jesus is saying is, I, I don't want you to jump from house to house, is I don't want you to offend your hosts. But the, the, there's, the, I, I think there's a, a lesson for us to be learned here, brothers and sisters, and it's one that I think the church needs to learn.
is that God places us where we are sometimes for reasons. And, 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 and it, we tend to want to bounce around. And, and if we don't like someplace, we're going to leave there and go someplace else. But I think these are messages that all of us can pay attention to, whether we're congregants, whether we're ministers, or whether we're missionaries. To, when the Lord places you someplace, to stay there and don't jump from house to house. Unfortunately, there is so much church hopping in the world today. I think one of the reasons that the church is in such trouble in America is that the idea of loyalty to a church is something that has just gone completely out the window. And and I'm not talking about people staying in a church for a while and then moving on to another church. I'm talking about people who go to five, six different churches in town, depending on how they feel that Sunday. You know, well, today I like music, so I'm going to that church. Today I feel like I need encouragement, so I'm going to go to that church. I need, I need to hear some, 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 some of, of the words, so I'm going to go to that church. And they end up like fleas, jumping from dog to dog, sucking the blood out of one church or the other, and never benefiting or plugging into the body. That's not what Jesus has in mind for us, folks. We have the local body that you are to gain and be part of. And I'm not saying that you have to have a paper that says you're a member. But a place that you invest yourself, that you learn, that you give to, that you're part of. So God doesn't, Jesus doesn't want you jumping from church to church. The same thing for pastors. Unfortunately, there are so many pastors who consider their calling to be more of a career than a calling. And so they go to one church and they go to another and it's almost like climbing the corporate ladder. You know, they go from a small church to a little bit bigger to a little bit bigger until they finally reach their Peter principle or they find a church that they think is worth their capabilities or or more than likely they plug into their denomination. Kind of was what was happening at this church. I, I came along here in 2004 And prior to me, I don't know how many different pastors they had, but they started the church here in the mid-1950s. And between the mid-1950s and 2004, the average tenure of a pastor here was under four years. Many of them there under two years. How do you get to know your congregation in two years? You don't have time to connect with anyone. There's no personal relationship there. So the same thing goes for pastors. It goes for missionaries too. I told you that when we go out into the mission field, it's very important to us that we have personal relationships with the people we serve. So therefore, we go to the same place year after year after year after year after year. We've been going to Haiti since 1998 up in Pignon and now in Cap Haitian and other places in that Plateau Central region. And, and we do that so that we can form personal relationships. We've built 17 churches up there and schools and medical clinics and, and in cottage industries and orphanages and things. Things that a small church like ours don't normally do. And the reason is because we have formed personal relationships with these people. It lagged a little bit because of the pandemic, but we're trying to get it back going again. The other approach is what people call the shotgun approach, you know, where every year there's a new and exciting missions trip and youth groups kind of contend with other big churches and try to pull youth from the other group because this year we're going to South Africa and next year we're going to Australia, you know, and they call them missions vacations of all things. Missions were never determined, meant to be a vacation where you fit a little missions work in between the beach and golfing, you know. And you call it a missions trip. It's not. The Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. He tells us to get out there without knapsacks or money bag or, or, or an extra pair of sandals. Get on out there and don't worry about your comfort because what you are doing is of so much greater value than your own personal comfort that you have no clue how important the job is. So he says, don't jump from House to house, from church to church, stay where you're planted. Well, in the last two verses, he kind of introduces what's going to be the next part of this. It's going to um, uh, be uh, moving from the home to the city or to the town, expanding the scope. Next week, we're going to see this turn quite negative as Jesus has something to say about those who actually do reject the offer of peace. But this week, it's all positive. That's why I included here. Look in the eighth verse. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. That's what I said. Okay? Every, you know, I can't read that without thinking about my mother. 
and me as a little nine-year-old boy sitting in front of a plate of boiled okra. I mean, that slimy stuff, it tastes like slugs. And she, she thought there was some miracle, you know, cure to slimy boiled okra. And she wouldn't let me up out of my seat unless I ate that stuff. And she said, you're going to eat what I set before you because children are starving in India. Anybody hear that or something like that? Um, that's not what he's saying. He's, he's saying, on the one hand, I don't want you to offend your host. And on the other hand, um, there's a nuance here. There's a nuance here as far as the Jews are concerned. Because you know that the Jews had very strict dietary laws. That they could only eat certain things. But now, even at this point, they're in either southern Samaria or northern Judea. Or they're over across the Jordan and Perea. So, I mean, there's some place where there's Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans. So, chances are they could be in a house where you're served something that is not according to the strict Jewish dietary laws. Now, Jesus in Mark has already kind of handled that when he says this. If I can find it. He says, there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And in parentheses, Mark says, thus, he declared all foods clean. So I think what Jesus is saying here is, listen, the tasks that you have is of so much greater importance than your own comfort. You know, you may be served something that might have been put in the less, less of sanitary conditions. I was in another place up in the Andes, this time Ecuador, and I was in a little village with a bunch of men, and they were fixing us dinner. And it was, I'm going to say it was less than sanitary conditions, to be sure. And I'm looking at the women of the village who go in. They, first of all, they get the chickens. They wring their necks. They pluck them. They get all the stuff out of the inside. And then they put them on the fire. And we're going to eat that. But, but, but they also were serving beets and cabbage and lettuce and onions. And they're so proud. And I'm looking at my plate. And I'm saying, I'm going to get so sick when I eat this. And I, I know I'm going to get sick. But... Once again, it's like what am I doing there is so much more important than to offend the host and actually be a detriment to the gospel. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. You know something, if they put something that you're not normally used to eating, it's, it's what you're, the, the, the mission you're on is of such greater importance. It goes on and says, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. There we have it. There's the one-two punch of apostling we talk about all the time. Lead with your left. The miracles authenticate your gospel, the missions, the, the mercy ministries. And then you come with that knockout punch, which is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus. And that's exactly what he's telling his disciples to do here. Go and heal the sick. Now, I think that that might be a little bit over-specific, actually, the way that it's translated. It's a good translation, but um, uh, James Edwards, one of the guys that I read regularly, says that um, the, the words themselves are broader than that. Uh, in fact, the word for heal can uh, um, to mean to minister to or to serve or to restore. And the word for sick does not just refer to an illness, but it can talk about someone who is weak or incapacitated in some way or has some kind of debility or, or limitation. So in other words, it's a much broader uh, range of what Jesus is commanding them to do. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that they didn't have the power to heal because obviously they did. And later we're going to find that they had the power to cast out demons. Uh, a temporary power, uh, albeit, but uh, still the power. But here it's a broader context of the mercy ministries that so many of us are involved with to show the love of Christ first and then Remember the reason that you were there, which is to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that is said in a variety of ways. The reason that they can say that the kingdom of God is near you is because the king is on his way. The king is there. And Jesus, even though the kingdom is not complete, even though he is not made at Jerusalem, even though the mechanics of salvation are not um, identified yet, they can still proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God because Jesus is the gospel and he is the kingdom. It's not just the mechanics of salvation. Now, of course, that's exactly what he's going to do. 
He's on his way to Jerusalem so that he can bring peace by going to the cross as a sacrificial substitutionary atonement. As Isaiah said, without question, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So in other words, Jesus is on a mission of peace. He's on his way to do it. But he's sending out these missionaries to introduce the Prince of Peace. And that's the formula. So brothers and sisters, I, I, I hope you realize now the simplicity of this formula, the straightforward nature of it, that, that it is a formula that actually works. It is the formula, the strategy of the kingdom that was that Peter and James and John went out in their first uh, uh, years of the church and they preached this and it's the same one that we preach today. It was effective then and it is effective now. It is the gospel of the kingdom and it is simply this. It is when the missionaries of peace go and share the message of peace with the children of peace, introducing them to the prince of peace. Simple and straightforward, isn't it? So I think the question that arises from that is, why why are so few people involved with evangelism? I mean, if it's that easy, if it's that straightforward, how come more people don't do it? And if you're honest with yourself, you'll kind of revise that question and ask yourself, why am I not involved with evangelism? Why have I been a Christian for 20 years and I've never shared my faith with one person? Why am I petrified of sharing the gospel? Well, I think there's several reasons for that. And I'm not going to go into all of them because it's a broad subject, but I'm just going to kind of stay true to the text here. <laughs> One is that the world out there is full of wolves, you know, and, and, and it's scary. And quite often you're going to find people who are very antagonistic to trying to share the gospel with them or to tell them about Jesus and, and to, to tell them about the coming of the king of the kingdom. So, so many people are afraid, but I think there's another reason. And I think one of the reasons that people are so reticent, uh, so slow to actually consider themselves as missionaries of peace is because to one degree or another, we have all fallen prey to the culture's idea of success, which is numbers, which is the numbers game, actually a numbers lie, because that's not the biblical idea of success. But I think to one degree or another, we think to ourselves, well, if I can't be Billy Graham and have hundreds if not thousands of people stream down the aisles every time I open my mouth, or, or if I, I can't go to a foreign country and, and, and share the gospel out there in the dark uh, place where it's never been heard before. If I, or if I can't go to a, a street corner and stand on my little uh, soapbox and preach the gospel to everyone who comes by. Or I can't go stand out Publix, uh, outside Publix and hand out a, a tract to everyone who comes. If that is just not me, then I'm, I, I'm not an evangelist and I can't share the gospel. Well, don't get me wrong here, folks, please. I'm not saying that there's not a place for the Billy Graham Crusades. There is. I'm not saying there's not a place for those who are called to stand on a street corner and preach the gospel. There is. God bless them. That's a tough way to do it. Or those who have it in their heart to stand outside of Publix and pass out tracts. I'm not saying anything about that. What I am saying is to all the people who never, ever share their faith with one person about Jesus, I think that we need to think small. And, 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 and what I mean by that is don't think about a small God because he's not small. He's capable of doing anything. It's his harvest. But you and I, especially if you are, 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 are timid about going out and standing on a street corner, I think you need to stop thinking of the many and start thinking of the one. Think about the one. Let me see if I can put it into a different context for you. Take everything that you're going to do from this time until the end of your life. Just think about that. Hopefully it's, it's, it's out there somewhere. 
But think about everything that you are going to accomplish and everything that you're going to do. Think about all the time that you're going to spend at work, all the time that you're going to spend sleeping, all the time that you're going to spend in front of a television, all the time that you're going to spend at recreation or sports, all the time that you're going to spend doing other things other than sharing the gospel. And add all of them up for the rest of your life, every single moment, and ask yourselves, what is the value eternally of all of that time? Negligible, if anything. But what if over that time of the rest of your life, you were able to tell one person about Jesus? One person only. And one person comes out of darkness. One lamb is saved from the mouths of the wolves. One person that you could disciple and mentor and go to church with and and, and give them a Bible and help them along their way. Just one person. Can you tell me how much that is worth eternally? One soul. I'm not telling you that soul is going to be lost. Because that's the Lord's soul. And and he's not going to lose anybody. Think about the blessing that you get by just concentrating on the one. Now, I can easily say that, concentrate on the one, because you do one, and it ain't over. It's just starting, because there's no greater blessing than to see the Lord work through you and bring someone to the Lord. So let me give you five quick, and you're saying five, are you kidding me? No, five, very quick, I promise you, you'll be out of here in just a few minutes. Five quick lessons from this lesson about how we can become the missionaries of peace that Christ commands us to be. Number one, live a life of Christ-likeness. That's so hugely important. Brothers and sisters, if you look like the world, you're not going to attract the sons and daughters of peace. They're looking for peace. They're looking for light. They're out in the stormy sea in the midst of a storm, and they're looking for a lighthouse. They're looking for a light in the darkness. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the one who can direct them out of the darkness, out of the turmoil, into the harbor of peace. So you have to look the part. You have to live the part. You have to be Christ-like in your life. That's step number one. Without that step, I'm telling you what. It's really hard to find the sons and daughters of peace. Number two, pray to the Lord of the harvest. That he will send laborers into his harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers into his harvest beginning with you. Keep in mind when Jesus says that to these 72 men, they're on their way out. They're on the way into the field. They're on the way into the harvest So pray fervently that the Lord will send you, give you a divine appointment, give you the opportunity to to, to go into his field, into his labor and and to harvest, to be part of that harvest. These are divine appointments and the Lord is the one who arranges them. So pray fervently. That doesn't mean once. That doesn't mean casually. That means every day for the rest of your life, ask God to lead one son or daughter of peace to you to hear the message of peace. I cannot tell you how fulfilled your life will be if you do that. Number three, stay planted where you are and blossom. Okay, Blossom wherever you are. Plug into your local church. Become part of it. Give and not take. Be Be part of the body. Learn to fellowship. Learn to share your faith. Learn what it's all about. Learn, be part of their evangelistic outreach. Study and be part of the means of grace. And then look at the world around you. If the Lord calls you to be a missionary and he wants you to go to Africa, then sell everything that you have and go to Africa. Just make sure it's the Lord saying that and not you. But you all have a network of people. You, you, you live in the midst of people. We're in a lost society, folks. You don't have to go very far in your sphere of people that you're around until you start finding people who are lost. And, 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 and let your light shine there. Stay where you're planted. Plug in to your local church. Because after all, the church is the secondary cause. The Lord's the primary cause. 
The church becomes the secondary cause in preparing you for the work that he has called you to. And finally, foster personal relationships. Eat what is put before you. All right? Now, does that mean you have to go out and start inviting people to your house for dinner? That's not a bad idea, folks. I'm telling you. That's a wonderful place to form a relationship with people. There's something about eating food together. I don't know what it is. But there's something about eating food together that just forms a bond between people. But it is through personal relationships. Now, I'm not saying that's the only way to reach people for Christ. But that is this way. That's what Jesus is talking about. Find a home, move in, eat with them, and stay there. And form relationships with them. And it is through that relationship that you're going to have the opportunity to say, peace be upon you. And finally... I know I said last was finally. I was joking. This, this is final. Prepare yourself. Know what you want to say. Peter put it this way. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to tell people about peace. The message of peace. And who the Prince of Peace is. So, brothers and sisters, this is a winning formula. This is not a fly-by-night scheme. This is not some new project. This is the project, the heart and soul of how the kingdom of God has been built. It is for the missionaries of peace to share the message of peace with the sons and daughters of peace by introducing them to the Prince of Peace. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you don't leave us wondering how we're supposed to do these things. You're so clear. You spell it out for us. And I just thank you for the clarity of this passage. And I thank you that, you know, if there was ever any confusion about sending out the apostles and whether or not that was just for them and not for us, uh, these are are regular disciples. And, And Lord, I pray that this church will take this to heart And that these people will take this to heart and that they will recognize that you work through tiny churches. You you work through small numbers of people. And that we, we, we need to be the ones to first pray that you would send into your field. And then we can worry about everyone else. Lord, I just thank you and give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.